0: Hey, welcome everybody. It's No Driving Gloves. You've got John and Will and Derek. We've got all three of us. Will's going to be here short. He's uh trying to play catch-up from running off to Arizona last weekend. Before we get into the thick of the episode, though, hearkening back to last week's epi- episode and Evan's waterless coolant, actually, Chris got back to us with a couple of answers to the questions, and instead of fluffing it up or whatever... Uh, Let me go ahead, and I'm just going to read the email I got pretty much word for word, just give you that update. So getting back to you and Derek regarding the listeners questioning about coolant getting into the bottom end and potentially damaging the bearings. As far as any risk of coolant damaging the bearings via abrasion, well, that really won't be an issue due to the fact that the formula now doesn't consist of any silicates. The glycol actually acts as a lubricant. parentheses 10W, oil on parentheses, but obviously is not an oil and shouldn't be used as an oil. Quantity of the coolant in the system will have major effect on the system as well. A pint of coolant in, say, a six-gallon system won't affect as much but a gallon. Well, that would be another story because that would potentially settle to the bottom end first and risk ruining the oil pump and anything it would pick up. It is always best you guys remove the coolant from the system as soon as possible to eliminate any risks. But going back to Derek's concern about being an abrasive, that won't be a risk without the silicates of the formula. Hope that helps and thanks. And I think he's talking about if any of the coolant got past the rings or seeped down into the oil pan and we've started to mix Evan's waterless coolant with the oil and what kind of effect it would have on the white metal. It kind of answers some of those questions, but it kind, you know, kind of still leaves it open. Again, you know, Chris kind of recommended that we uh, look at uh, going to his, you know, talking to their technical people if you actually are concerned on those levels. Check out you know evenswaterlesscoolant.com and go ahead and contact their technical people or shoot them off an email and they will uh, help you with that. So, with that kind of stumbling recap of last week, any big exciting things happen for you, Derek?
1: Big exciting things happen for me over the last week. Um, No, not at all. Not at all. I actually had a weekend. Actually, I've had a couple weekends at home to start working on some home projects, which has been nice because I've been traveling a lot. But other than that, It's been pretty relaxed, so kind of nice.
0: Week three episode, we'll ask the question, any boxes from NASA?
1: Uh, Has the government reopened?
0: As of recording night? Nope. (laughs) So we we fell into that, too. We were supposed to go do some maintenance on one of our exhibits in D.C. And um, just kind of assumed to cancel that trip because they really can't call and tell us not to come either because... They're shut down. They're not supposed to go to work. <laughs> so Very true. And really an interesting thing and it's the residual effect. Obviously, there's people in, you know, much bigger, dire straits and worrying about a couple of exhibits, but just how the little tentacles work their way out. Before we bother Will, we're only gonna have him for a couple of minutes tonight. We're gonna we do have a guest joining us tonight. His name's uh Brett Hatfield actually attended McPherson. It's amazing We always talk about how networking is. This is, you know, networking at its finest. So we have three McPherson attendees on the podcast tonight. Brett is a writer, uh, auction analyst for Sports Car Market Magazine. He uh, writes for American Car Collector Magazine. He hosts another podcast, The Driven, uh, with uh, Mark Catfish Groves, I think is his co-host. At present. And he uh, writes for the website readthedriven.com. Did I get all that right there, uh, Brett?
2: Yes, sir. You sure did.
0: Uh, Dang, I'm good. And I have no script or notes in front of me.
3: Wow, look at that.
0: I remember, sir. He's got his
3: eyes closed, too. (laughs) (laughs) I
0: I have a tendency (laughs) to speak with my eyes closed, as uh, Scotty D really pointed out. It gets me into the groove. I feel like a rock and roll star.
1: It's actually just because we also use video to see each other and he doesn't want to see me or Will in his you know, on his computer, so
2: So of the three, he's see no evil.
1: Yes.
3: <laughs> right.
0: And then will Brett actually crossed paths with Will this weekend in Arizona. I know it wasn't the weekend you were expecting, Will. Would you want to talk anything about your first experience at Barrett-Jackson? I, you know, I've been there. Obviously, Brett's been there. I can't remember if uh, Derek's ever been to Barrett-Jackson or any of the Arizona auctions, but... Nope. That's Derek saying, that's Derek saying no, for saying it... Oh, yeah, set.
1: man, first... <laughs> yeah, no, that was me saying um, no. I've never been out to the Arizona auctions. Go ahead, Will. Um...
3: Uh, first, first, I just want to thank Barrett Jackson for giving uh, giving Willie a shot on a Saturday night, and they did everything they could. Uh, I know a lot of people saw it on TV, and it appeared to be very short, although it really wasn't. the The bidding actually stalled at ninety thousand. They stopped the auction and talked about the car, and you know everything that it, the car had won, and, and all the body mods, and you know the hours spent on it. And uh, got it got it up there a little bit more. So nothing nothing but thanks to to Barrett Jackson for what they did for that dart. I haven't confirmed this, but I'm sure pretty positive that that's uh, that's probably a record for a early A body Mopar. Not not yeah, really much having, to complain about there. They did give us.
2: I, I'm sorry, Will, but having I was going to say, but having seen the car in the flesh. I thought it was certainly worth
0: quite a bit more. I've seen the car a couple of times in person, and it it's really a testament, and it proves the timing. I think the car is definitely worth a lot more, especially if it had a four thirty in the afternoon auction slot as opposed to uh, nine o'clock or ten o'clock. I can't I can't remember what time it was in uh, Arizona, and uh, I think that that hurt it. It did look like they were rushing the car across the block. And, you know, I've interned for Barrett Jackson. And, you know, if they give three minutes to a car, that is an an amazing amount of time. And and they kind of rushed it a little bit, but they did pause. They did uh, describe it a little bit more. Uh, They modified the auction catalog description prior to, to Saturday. They did that. And what really amazed me is they... They milk that car. Uh, like Will said, the bidding stalled at ninety and I thought it was done at ninety. And then somehow miraculously they got it to a hundred and started to roll it off the, the block and they squeezed another seven thousand dollars. And that's there's something there, as Will says, I'll talk bad if I want to talk bad about you and really don't care. Barrett Jackson's tough and they'll they'll normally just push that and shove that away, but they worked for that other seven thousand dollars and you know, Barry Jackson. That's only a couple hundred bucks for them, but they they gave that car, I think, a, a very fair shake. And unfortunately, in an auction, it takes two bidders in the room. And I'm not sure how many people were there that late for for a Dart. But um, if I understand correctly, the you know, Will's a little bit disappointed as the builder, but I think the owner was happy with what he yeah, got. Yeah,
3: you know, at the end of the day, it, it's still a 1965 Dart. No matter what's been done to it, it's still a 1965 Dart, and it's painted green. Willie was happy with the number. It went to a good home. When the owner of the vehicle is happy, everybody should be happy, no matter what happens. So, and and that's what happened. Um, but Barrett Jackson, the way I've been describing it all week to the guys at the shop was, it's a uh, very wealthy man's party with a car auction going on in the background. I felt a little bit out of my element when um, there's a company there that is vending, that is selling private jets and helicopters. You know, that's, that's something that I'll never be able to afford. Uh, I enjoyed looking at it. Uh, it was cool. And I'm, I'm sure that, that I'll go back. Not probably not next year, but um, it's something that, should definitely be on your bucket list as a as a car person. And it's very enjoyable. I mean, whether you just sit there and watch the auction or you walk around and look at all of the I'm gonna say crap because a lot of it is crap that they have for sale. Anything from, you know, mattresses to kitchen knives to massage chairs to learjets, you know? pretty interesting walking around and looking at all that stuff. And then all the cars and and I think we had more fun walking around and, and seeing what they brought. And and then, you know, really looking at the cars then and going, well, oh, why did this car not bring so much? And then you really look at it and it's like, man, that's a, that's a pretty good car. And then you look at one that brought, you know, more than the Dart and I'm walking around it and I'm going, good Lord. You know, th- there's nothing to this thing. But then again, there was the opposite of that, too. You know, low end, low a uh, low price was a low end car, and a high price was a high end car. So, and like John said, that's the that's the risk you take, or the reward you get uh, when when you go to auction.
0: I've always found Barrett Jackson, or any auction that you go to, I I think they're the best car shows in the world to go to. And you know, go to Barrett Jackson, and I don't know what a ticket for that costs. It's been a few years since I've been there. Fifty bucks, a hundred bucks, best car show you'll go to. And then, of course, there's always that fantasy that if you really wanted to, unlike most car shows, you can take that car home with you. I say the funny side, Will, is I was out Saturday with a friend of mine and asked him a question and he said, oh, no, I sold that a couple of years ago. Matter of fact, I sold my jet on Friday. So
3: (laughs) I guess there you go. Well, you're you're right about it being one of the best shows you can go to is you get if, if you're really interested in a car. You, you can hear it run. You can watch them drive it. No, you're not going to see them go 80 down the interstate. In a setting like that, is tougher on a vehicle than going down the interstate. You know, it's crank it up, move it. 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 You know, it takes a pretty well-built car to to take that kind of a beating, you know, heat soaking and then and cranking them up. And, but I'll tell you, you know, Barrett Jackson does one hell of a job. You know, with mechanics out there in the line before they go up on the block to make sure the batteries are charged. And, you know, I mean, we've seen some crazy crap happen. Matter of fact, uh, something a little goofy happened uh, with the dart that I was able to get fixed really quick. It was nothing major, but um, it's it's pretty interesting to see people hustling around in that line to, uh, to get the car up on the block. Because once it goes across the block, it ain't theirs. <laughs> it's not their problem anymore.
0: Yeah, I interned there back when I was at McPherson. I don't know if you remember me going in January. And it was the hardest week I've probably ever worked in my life. At the time, uh, Drew Alcazar, who now owns Russo Steely, and I know Brett knows very well, he was kind of the Steve Davis of Barrett-Jackson. I think he was an executive vice president or president of Barrett-Jackson at the time. And I kind of answered to him, and I mean... I think I pulled in and I checked into my hotel and I was told to call him the moment I got there. I called him at 2.30 in the morning. He said, can you come on down? I just got out of the car <laughs> after 12 hours. I said, can I get there a little bit later? He goes, be here at 5. <laughs> and it was oh, almost wow. 5 a.m. to the time I left a week later, uh, just working that auction week. And it, it was amazing. You know how much behind the scenes and what I learned doing that. I'll be honest, I left and I was cussing Drew. But over the years, is I've bumped into him once or twice and seen him what he's built with his wife, um, and his auction. Uh, I really have respect for that man and any of those guys. You know, we can we can you know critique Craig, and I mean he made a couple of bucks and he's been very successful at the auctions. And I think he helped build Arizona to what it is in January. You know, it's it's
2: definitely... I think that's absolutely true. It's
0: definitely a different climate than when you go to a Bonhams or a Gooding auction. But, they, you know, to each his own. And there's uh you know, there was a white and blue Ford GT, at think, at Gooding in Arizona. There was a white and blue Ford GT at Barrett-Jackson. So just what party do you want to be at? And I think Will's really correct in that it's a... It's a party with rich kids and rich guys, and they, uh, you know, they're just exchanging cars. What's your take on auctions, there, Brett?
2: Uh, you know, I've been at several times, although I hadn't been for a few years. And when I went to see Will Saturday, uh, my goodness, is
3: that I was going
0: to say, let's interrupt real quick here. Will, Will's taking off for the night. He's got to get back to the shop. So,
3: thank you, guys. Well, it was yeah, good up. to see you. you too. Talk to you guys next week.
0: Thanks for squeezing us in tonight, Will.
3: I hadn't been to Barrett-Jackson
2: for several years. This was the first time I'd gone over there in, uh, in an auto-journalist capacity. I'd always been there as either a spectator or a bidder before. It has at least doubled in size in the last 10 years, a- at a minimum. I couldn't get around to all of it in one afternoon. There's just so much stuff there. Yeah, a- Apparently, they've got their business model figured out. I can't
0: remember. Are they in a tent, or did they—is did? Uh, it—I want to say Westworld, but— uh,
2: It's at Westworld, and they've got several tents. They've also got what looks like a semi-permanent structure there now. Yeah,
0: because at one time, I believe he was holding that auction in the largest tent in the world. It was like a million square feet, which, you know, even even our, our museum is only—you know, it's 223,000 square feet, and it's huge— I just can't believe,
2: and that's a big building.
0: <laughs> I can't believe you're, you're dealing with a million square foot tent
2: auction. I don't think it's a tent. It it seemed to have a semi permanent structure to it, but maybe they take it down afterward. I'm not sure.
0: I th- I can't remember. I think he he asked, and I think a like a permanent ish structure was constructed, and maybe they expanded. It's I mean, even the tent 15 years ago looked like a building, and you can't believe
2: it came down. But yeah. Well, I first started going to Barrett-Jackson in the mid-90s, and at that time, uh, the entrance lets you into the hall where all the displays were and all the vendors were, and then you came into the auction tent, and then uh, a few years later, they added another tent on the backside of that for featured lots, and it's grown from that. Now, when you enter, you come into a hall where there are manufacturer displays, and then it's too big to be a kiosk. It's uh, where they're selling all the Barrett-Jackson uh, merchandise. Mm-hmm. Then you go know to the Austin awesome tent, and on the other side of the tent, there's combined feature lots and hundreds of vendors. And you walk outside, and there's hundreds more vendors. Uh, it's cars and food, and, uh, you know, uh, we were discussing earlier – uh, Superformance had their tent out there, and McGuire's had their their setup out there. It has gotten to be absolutely ginormous. It's it's huge. You can't take it all in in one day.
0: Kind of like SEMA in Arizona, I guess. <laughs>
2: yeah, kind of like, kind of like, and it's uh, it's in pretty stark contrast to other auctions. You know, Drew Alcazar has a good size auction. Russo at Scottsdale, they had. I think they had 800 cars there this year. And they do have giant outside tents with all of the cars in them. And then they've got an auction tent. And it's a fraction of the size of Barrett-Jackson. Drew's is a different kind of auction. and But I, I really enjoy both of them. They're a lot of fun. Working for the magazines, I'm an auction analyst for both the uh, Sports Car Market and American Car Collector. And I get to travel around and see how different auction companies do different things. When I cover Mecum Kansas City, they just they come to Bartle Hall. They come to a giant exhibition hall and do their auction there. That's all indoor fixed facility that sort of thing. You know, it's kind of fun to see the differences between the sales.
0: I was going to spin it a little bit, maybe get Derek into the conversation. We we've looked at and we've talked on the show uh, about the Tupelo Auto Museum, you know, is beginning to all wind down stage oh, yeah. and we'll be going to to auction uh derek has mentioned he's interested in some lots and i don't know what derek's auction you know experience is and actually i've kind of talked to a couple other people that are interested in the tupelo do you have any comments on say that or are you going to attend that one
1: uh are you talking to me or brett
0: whoever talks first
1: no oh, okay <laughs> um i still i still plan on on attending Hopefully, you know, that doesn't mean people are going to go and bid against me if I bid on anything.
0: It, it's like that hot dog job to drive the Wienermobile right now. I really want to apply for it, but so many people have shared it on Facebook. Oh, go for <laughs> you it, know, <laughs> you know you're, you're hurting my chances. If you're really not interested in the job, don't share it. <laughs> Quit sharing it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> John, did you see that the Wienermobile was in Kansas City last week during an ice storm and ran into the back of another car?
0: No, I missed that one. It actually was in Birmingham a week or two ago. I saw it running down the interstate here on my way home one night. So,
2: maybe, well, maybe, There must be more than one mobile. Well,
0: maybe that's why they're hiring somebody new. You know, it's like a UPS driver. You crash once, you're done.
2: <laughs> <laughs> on the Tupelo auction, uh, I'm friends with a, a gentleman named Ward Morgan. Is opening a car museum in Manhattan, Kansas, called the Midwest Dream Car Collection. Ward and I keep running into each other at uh, different auctions and stuff like that. We were hanging out. Uh, he bought a, uh, a Mustang Mach 1 R-code car. And so last year, while we were sitting around drinking beer, I saw the Tupelo thing came come up, and I've encouraged Ward to go, but I don't know if he's still buying cars or not. He's... Uh, getting close to 70 cars in his museum, and I think it's more than he's going to be able to display at any one time.
0: I'll play off that one a little bit. Derek, how many cars do you display in your museum? Do you know, or on average? I know you're always rotating exhibits, but...
1: Uh, On average, right around 70, but that includes cars that are in on loan as well.
0: I always joke about that, about barbers. Kind of, I guessed it actually on... Brett showed we just about an hour hour and a half ago I was doing the interview with Brett for his podcast so you can go ahead and check me out if you really want to over the the, the driven I'm not sure when that episode will release but we'll keep you updated
2: should be around uh Friday afternoon
0: well there you go there but it was I, I talked about the 1700 motorcycles we have in you know our museum and they people forget that we have a hundred cars represented and usually seventy cars on display at any given time, sixty or so of them are actually lotus cars, but we're known as a motorcycle museum and we have collect- you know a collection that is the same size as a lot of car museums it's I just always find that it's so easy to lose seventy cars behind a thousand or seventeen hundred motorcycles it's it's interesting i one of my little personal things but
1: yeah, yeah, very true. And, you know, I mean, the, the Corvette Museum, our collections stands at about 85 cars. The collection of the museum itself, which, of course, you take away some of the cars we have on on loan that are on display. And, you know, we, we probably display, you know, 55 to 65 museum owned cars and then yeah you know, the others are are special vehicles in on loan from private owners, general motors, other museums, things like that. The funny thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is it's pretty common in the museum world for thirty percent of your artifacts to be on display and seventy percent to be in storage uh that's kind of a running average percentage average let's call it of amount of items that you display, and that's just because exhibit space, you know, you, you want to have one artifact, have a a fair amount of space around it so people can actually see it. Whereas in storage, you can store things a lot closer together. Um, you know, so the bulk of your collection typically is in storage.
0: I agree with you there. I think we actually run about the opposite. I think we have a little over a thousand of the 1700 motorcycles on display and we have a good majority of the cars, like I said, anywhere between 60 and 70 with 30 or so. So we probably run the exact opposite. We have 70% on display and 30% in storage. But.
1: Well, and you guys don't have a lot of small artifact collections. You know, you don't have a lot of that kind of little memorabilia or parts or things that are considered artifacts that don't always make it out. So.
0: We're we're good on the big displays, not the little. But I'll just let you know we're we're competing with you guys. We just uh, built a wall, and we'll have we acquired a collection of nine thousand Lotus models last year, and we should have four to five thousand of those on display. So there you go. Uh, you guys, what have six hundred Corvette models on display, or so, and that and kind of leading into that's a new exhibit you have. I think I saw. Not well, that we're
1: promoting our museums, but. Uh, I, I don't know what you saw, John, but no.
0: <laughs> oh, I thought she had some little models or something on display, like going into the new children's area or something.
1: Uh, we do just, it, well, we have a portion of a, about, uh, it was roughly a 700, uh, models, uh, collection that was donated, but it's a small portion of that that's on display. Okay. Uh, so it's not the entire six, 700 cars, uh, model cars on display. It's a portion of them.
0: Okay. Maybe I misunderstood.
1: So back to back to auctions, uh, seeing that's where we were. I I do plan on on hopefully making the the two below auction. Of course, that one's if I remember it going through Sotheby's. We can imagine probably some of the prices are going to be. But, and as for my auction experience, I actually bought my 1917 Overland Model 90 Roadster through an auction. Uh, We won't mention what auction house it was, but I knew the people who were running the auction, who worked for the auction company and things like that. And needless to say, it it came down to, there were some, some auction tactics used that, uh, I was not pleased with and had long conversations with them about what I would actually pay for the car. Not not a huge fan of auctions. I, I I like the private sale situation better where you can actually sit down and talk about the value of the car and do some, you know, bartering and and bickering on uh, how much you're going to pay and uh, all those good things. Uh, and I'm I'm not a huge fan of large crowds, so uh, something like the Barrett Jackson Westworld auction not always something I a situation I always like to put myself in because me and big crowds I just get uncomfortable. So,
0: well, now that we took all the uh, wind out of Brett's sails, let's let's shift gears here a little bit and uh, <laughs> let's talk about Brett's collector car collection. Or I think he mentioned that he has a couple of cars. And what kind of uh, where'd you start with your your car collection? Not necessarily what you I, still I owned, a, or what what got you into the automobile, and what put you on this career path oh, to, you know...
2: I was a car guy from the jump, uh, just like so many of us. Uh, I loved cars when I was a little kid, and always had a fascination with the idea of being able to uh, get in one and go fast. I mean, I probably started with big wheels, uh, as far as that goes. When I was 10 years old, i mowed enough lawns in the neighborhood to save up part of the money to buy a go-kart. And my dad and grandfather ma- matched the rest of it, wound up buying a go-kart for my 10th birthday. And, uh, you know, go-karts, dirt bikes, my dad owned a lumber yard, So I learned how to drive manual transmission stuff really early, starting with the uh, forklifts and lumber trucks when I was 13 I graduated from high school and I've written a story about this on the driven. So you can look it up through high school. I'd had several cars. One of them was a Camaro and I'd gone out and tried to get in every kind of trouble I possibly could And accomplished that fairly well and had gotten a dump truck load full of tickets. I hadn't told my dad about, and I just paid them off and I thought, okay, that'll go away. And, For graduation, I got out of high school on a plea bargain. No one was more surprised than my old man, and he was going to let me go pick out a new car. So he gave me a budget and a couple other parameters and said, okay, go find something. And I was looking at 1988 RX-7 GTUs, which would have been a second-generation RX-7. And the GTU was the super lightweight version. And I figured, okay, it'll be great. It'll be light. So, uh, the power will seem more useful. It will go around corners. And I, I found that and I came back to my dad and I said, this is what I found and this is what I want. And, uh, it's under budget. So, uh, what do you think? And he called his insurance guy. The insurance guy checked my, uh, my driving record and started laughing at my dad over the phone. And said, you know, the kids got so many tickets, it's probably going to cost about three grand a year to insure them for that kind of money. He might as well be driving a Corvette and dad had a 60 Corvette and an airplane hanger and he'd bought it four years before. I helped him find the car and you know, he was, he was really mad at me, but you could kind of see the, the gears start turning and he looked at me he said, uh, so would you rather drive that old Corvette I got? <laughs> Absolutely, and that's how a, a skinny, probably spoiled, and not real bright kid from Kansas wound up with a vintage Corvette.
0: Now, now, and the car was. I'm going to interrupt there. So, the moral of your story is: when you're 16, go out and get a bunch of tickets, and get rewarded by not getting a brand new car and be given a 60 Corvette because the, because the insha- <laughs> dad's not mad dad's okay with 3 grand a month or 3 grand a year insurance <laughs>
2: no 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 dad was dad was furious dad was fuming but uh, the corvette was under a, a blanket policy with all the other cars we owned through the company he could kind of get around having me insured and not shell out the, all the money for the new car and save himself a 15 grand by giving up a car that he didn't drive uh, it it kind of depends on how you look at it. <laughs> now, I think you
0: I think you won on just about every aspect of that deal.
2: <laughs> oh, are, are you kidding me? I'm the luckiest SOB walking. <laughs> I just flat am. And the car was so cool, and it was always so much fun to drive and own, that I never got rid of it. And, uh, you know, I'm 31 years in the road, I didn't own that car. So that was the first collector car I ever had. And it just never sold it. Yeah, I don't um, don't
0: think that RX7 that. would still be around.
2: No, 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 no. I think that RX7 probably would have been wadded out. You know, by having Dad give me an underpowered base base engine Corvette with a power glide, probably saved my life. And there's a pretty good chance I would have gone out and done heinous things in the RX and whoever else was in the car with me, but. I've got that old Corvette. I've got a 61 Impala hot rod with a 409 in it, two four-barrels and a four-speed. It's the Beach Boys song. And uh, a 63 Impala convertible and uh, and an old Bronco that I'm sitting in right now.
0: What era of Bronco?
2: It's a 1990, but it's a two-owner truck. My brother-in-law bought it new, and I spent five years trying to talk him out of it. And three years ago, he sold it to me. It's it's got fifty nine thousand miles on it. Never seen any rust. It's just a great old truck.
0: So do you just drive old cars, or do you? uh, I mean, I'm sitting here. We're sitting here on January twenty third. I think it just recently snowed in Kansas, and you're in your
2: it did thirty year old
0: Bronco. Do you do you have anything modern, or do you just drive classics?
2: No, I've got a a a ninety nine Navigator that's got. 271 thousand miles on it. that's what I drive most of the time. but until about a month ago, uh, I also ran a property management company and uh, looked over uh, watched over a bunch of uh, condos and commercial properties uh, that we owned here in town. And so I had to have that Navigator. It was uh, my practical vehicle, you know, throw tools in the back, throw materials in the back, haul a trailer, all that garbage. Now, I don't really have a job that requires I drive anything in particular, so I get to drive what I want. My wife's daily is a Red Over Red 05 GTO. So with the weather being crummy like it is, I let her take the Navigator, and I've
1: been driving my old Bronco.
0: I'm going to go somewhere. Or you tell me if I overstep my bounds. Wasn't Wait,
1: I need to know if the Bronco, is is the Bronco white? No, sir.
2: Oh, okay. okay. It, it's its black and gray.
0: All of a sudden, I've got a picture of my old Hot Wheels, black Bronco with the uh or, kind of faded orange 70s retro graphics. I don't know if yeah. you remember that.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: and I had that Bronco. I'm still looking for that Bronco.
1: That Hot Wheel?
2: Yeah, I want to find one of those and paint it like my truck.
1: Oh, John still has
0: it. Uh, I was going to say, I think I have it in. It's it's probably in my warehouse, but I I guarantee you, I still have that Bronco. I also have, I think, a white one. <laughs> Maybe I have to drop you something in the mail. It's cold here, though. Well, so... What do
2: you? Ha- <laughs> <laughs> what would you like to know, sir?
0: wasn't there a. Um certain 05 GTO that was kind of stranded somewhere on its way to Arizona in the snow
2: recently? Yeah, I I stole the wife's car to go to Arizona because I thought, hey, the weather will be nice. It'll be fun to have a hot rod down there. And then I got stuck in a snowstorm in the Mogollon Rim in Arizona. (laughs) I wound up having to stay in the... A less than fantastic hotel, but any port in a storm.
0: First time I was in Arizona in 85 with the family, we loaded up our uh, Dodge 600 ES convertible and drove from Illinois and we went Oklahoma, blah, 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 all the way out to, to I think we went Vegas and Tahoe and then made our way back. It snowed in Arizona and I, you know, I just never comprehended that it would snow in Arizona and
2: you come to understand that those Arizona mountains look a heck of a lot like Colorado mountains, and uh, they have similar weather.
0: Very, very true. And when you're coming from Kansas, they just never seem to arrive. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think you you drove from. I think you're you're in the Kansas City area, if I remember right. And I I, am. I drove obviously from McPherson out to Arizona, and whew, I did that in my. I had a. Sort of ninety-seven Dodge long bed extended cab pickup, and you know you're running eighty, eighty-five miles an hour through the mountain roads. That truck just didn't quite handle that very well. <laughs> it was kind kind of white knuckle driving on that
2: trip. Oh, oh I believe it. Uh, fortunately, the GTO, as long as it's not snowing, that car handles really well. All the power you're ever going to need, and it it runs healthy.
0: Uh, Derek's a former GTO owner, kind of a different era. <laughs>
1: uh yeah, well, yeah, GTO guy. Nineteen I had a, my actually my very first car was a nineteen seventy-four Pontiac GTO. My on my bucket list of cars to own is a uh what I like to call the Holden, you know, crossover GTO, the O five six era GTO. They, so someday I'll have one.
2: They are fantastic cars and uh you gotta give it up to uh, Holden. They have great seats. seats are really comfortable and uh, as a testament to that uh, coming back from from Scottsdale I did Scottsdale to Kansas City at 17 hours and I wasn't sore when I got out that's really saying something I'm too old to do
0: 17 hours in
1: a one trip
2: well it was 1200 miles in 17 hours we were making good time I was making good time
1: He didn't even stop for dinner or uh, bathroom breaks.
2: If you can't do it while I'm getting gas, you don't get to do it.
0: (laughs) I've learned to travel a little bit more casually with some additional breaks. Drives me crazy sometimes, but there's also some rewards, I guess, to be had. Stop and smell the roses.
2: Uh, I can appreciate that. Um, I have two daughters and a wife, and. Uh, We've done a a road trip from Kansas City to... My folks used to have a house in Tucson. Doing the trip from Kansas City to Tucson with the family and the little dog that's got a thimble bladder uh, took two days as opposed to the seven-hour run I would have made. It's a lot more comfortable to do it that way, but I want to get where I'm going. I want to get there. And it was just...
0: Say I I kind of totally understand that, but that's going to lead to my next question. And talking with you is, you know, you're racing back from Arizona to go to your, I guess, dream job for a lot of car car people. You know, to write some articles on what you saw at Arizona. How do you work your way into becoming an auction analyst for Sports Car Market Magazine? Or you know, if I want to grow up and do that,
2: it was a goof. Like we talked, I I've been a uh sports car market subscriber for a long time and an American car collector subscriber and uh, a Corvette uh, collector subscriber before that. And about four and a half years ago, uh, sports car market sent an email to all their subscribers that said, have you ever wanted to be an auction analyst? I write fairly well, but I didn't have any kind of a background for it. I don't have a journalism degree. And I'd never written for anything that was published. But so I was looking at the email. And like I said, I had a a full-time job doing property management. And I thought, eh, shoot, I'm never going to get this. And my wife really pushed me to send a reply in. And I I sent one in. I said, I'm very interested in doing this. Uh, I'm reasonably literate. I I can write. And I would like to do so. And I, I sent the reply in. I didn't hear anything for a year. And then one of their editors, a guy named Tony Piff, who is no longer with the magazine, sent me an email back uh, about a year later saying, are you still interested in doing this? And I said, yeah. He said, okay, there's an auction. There's a lake auction coming up in Dallas. Go cover it. And uh, I'm not kidding. I didn't get a whole lot more instruction than that. Uh, They said, you'll need a camera better than your phone. Go down there. Review 50 cars come back we'll put 25 of them in sports car market we'll put 25 of them in american car collector you'll need a lead-in article for each magazine go down there and cover it and, and the rest of it was just you know it was trial by fire uh i went down there i hauled way too much gear around with me on the first auction i had a messenger bag full of all kinds of papers here's the cars i thought i was going to review before i came to the auction and Dragged a camera around with a tripod. uh, Just way too much stuff. So the first auction taught me, one, how to choose cars and review them once you get there. Because picking them from uh, online pictures or from a catalog, you don't know what the car's really like. Two, it taught me that one of the most important things about covering these auctions is traveling light. Take a camera. I take a small uh, pad of paper and a pen so you can write down what you've covered, and I take a digital voice recorder. When I get there, I take pictures of the car, and then I walk around the car, and I just kind of talk my way through the car's condition. This is what the paint looks like. Has it had decent prep? Was the application okay? Is there orange peel to it? Are there scratches in the paint? Uh, Does it feel rough to the touch? Does it have overspray on it? how does the chrome look has it been done recently are there buffer marks on the chrome has it been scraped or bumped up uh, same thing with the stainless the glass the weather strip and, and you you know you kind of work your way through the car is the engine bay clean are there aftermarket parts on it what's the interior look like all of these things and that's you have to do all that stuff on every car you do that 50 times you got enough to do articles for two magazines
0: you make it sound like work.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is work. But it's work that I happen to enjoy a lot. It is a lot of fun. And the other thing is, if you've got a good memory for cars, and you know most of us car guys do, you'll remember when you see the car again someplace else. If you see it in another venue, if you see it at another auction, or if you see it online someplace, or you see it on eBay or on Hemings. And uh, it's funny how many cars I've reviewed from auctions pop up on Bring a Trailer. You know, if, uh, if you are a Bring a Trailer uh, follower, and I know a lot of us are, every now and then you'll see some schmuck called Red Vet 1960 on there saying, I reviewed this car for Sports Car Market. Well, that's me.
0: <laughs> I do believe I've seen your handle. Um, mine on there is Spare Car. And, uh... <laughs> I kind of get that way, and I, usually I'm commenting on some Lotus piece and that. Well, I'll note a watch for you now. Say, so, yeah, it's kind of an interesting and you know, thing. I, I know the uh, job application type thing you're talking about, because I think I filled out two of those so far for barn finds, and uh still don't have any agreement to... They keep won't call me back.
2: Yeah, I did one with barn finds, too, and they didn't contact me, and I also did one for bring a trailer, and they didn't contact me, so... Like I said, I just kind of fell into working for the two magazines, but Keith and everybody at the magazines, and this is where I get to brag people up, Uh, Chester Allen, Jim Pickering, and Chad Tyson have all been really fantastic to work for and work with, and they've been very helpful with things as we've got along, and also Darren Frank uh, is great to work with, uh, Cindy Meidel, and everybody at the magazine has been a lot of fun to be around. And we do get together uh, at uh, big gatherings. We got together uh, last year out at Monterey. And it's just fun to get everybody in one place at one time. And it's it's a neat team to work with. I do enjoy it. And, you know, for a guy who loves cars and loves to be around them, it is kind of a dream job. You know, I get paid to write about other people's stuff. I guess it,
0: it does sound kind of, kind of cool. And if anybody now knows, you just got to wait for that email. Subscribe to Sports Car Market for thirty years and
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: see 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 when they uh, ask.
2: Go right ahead. I was just going to say, um, I got really lucky. I, I'm. I, I know how lucky I am. I know how fortunate I am. And covering the auctions is work. You also feel like you have a real hand in letting people know what's going on in our world. And I think we've all, you know, uh, you and I discussed this, John. Uh, we all feel like we want to preserve and uh, educate people to the collector car community and hope that we can get future generations interested in it. Because if we don't all work together, this will go away. It can go away. I don't think we, any of us want to lose it.
1: Okay, so I, I've got to ask you, you Brett, um, just because you brought that up, and one of my maybe one of my issues with auctions, or and and maybe it's founded, maybe it's unfounded. You know, you talk about getting young kids involved, stuff like that, and there's a lot of times that you know you look at the auctions and the things that are going on and it makes it really tough for the prices that these cars go for that sometimes are just really probably overinflated prices at these auctions. I mean it really makes it hard for kids again. I mean, what is what is your take on that being an auction analyst? I mean, I you know, I guess it's always bothered me.
2: What we're starting to see now and what uh, is happening is that The super expensive blue chip cars, uh, the stuff that you see more commonly at Gooding or at RM Sotheby's, will always be super expensive blue chip cars. You know, uh, vintage racing Ferraris are always going to command a a heck of a premium. Um, You know, you're never going to see Ferrari 250 GTOs Mm -hmm. selling in the hundred thousand dollar neighborhood again. It's not going to happen. But what is what we are seeing as a trend now? As later Gen Xers and Millennials are getting into the collector car world, the cars that are selling more commonly are thirty to forty thousand dollars cars. You're not seeing as many six figure uh, cars go across a block, or you're not seeing them command the prices they were. The resto mods are more popular right now, but that's mostly for. Uh, older Gen Xers and baby boomers who still like their old cars, but they want air conditioning. They want power windows. They want nice radios in them. The cars that we're starting to see uh, collectors in their 30s look for, look how hot square-body trucks are from GM, Ford, and and Dodge. And, uh, you know, look at uh, second-gen Camaros are starting to find their legs third-gen Corvettes are starting to become more popular. Stuff that sells in the $30,000, dollars $50,000 range is starting to have a lot more following than stuff that sells in the hundred dollars to $200,000 range. The prices are coming down, and we're getting younger people involved. And I'm excited by that. I, I hope that that continues to be a trend.
1: So do you think the auction auction houses are ready for that? Because obviously when they... When they start selling those lower-value cars, they're not really making as much money.
2: I think that you'll see auction houses try to continue to appeal to uh, sellers who have really expensive cars. But at some point, you have to serve the demand. And if the demand is in that thirty dollars to forty, fifty $50,000 range, you'll have to make adjustments to serve it. You can't dictate to the customer what they're going to buy and sell. You're going to have to follow the demand. You know, there's there's going to be adjustment that has to be made. But by the same token, as collectors get, you know, the same thing is going to happen with the next generation as happened with our generation. As collectors get older, they earn more money and they go look for their tastes evolve, and they go look for other things. There's going to be a generational shift. I don't see any of the auction houses going under. I just think that there's going to be a change in what's selling and what's worth more money. One of the things that we're seeing now is we're seeing prices soften on some things that used to be considered very collectible cars. Tri-5 Chevys are going down in value. You don't see as many really radical 55, 56, 57 Chevrolet uh, resto mod builds or restorations. They're just not as common right now because the demand isn't there. Uh you're seeing prices soften on mid year corvettes, not tons, but a little bit and I think that's going to continue to be a factor. There are certain things that will always have cachet Corvettes always will, but I don't think that the current gen- or the next generation is going to feel like they've got such a tie to the mid years and the solid axles as they did before as the previous generation did.
0: I was going to ask you, Brett, let's uh talk a little bit about readthedriven.com dot com and the, uh, the the driven podcast and that. Um, looking at your site, it's kind of funny. It looks like you you kind of started Read The Driven April of two thousand eighteen. So just a couple months before we actually launched this podcast. Is that correct, <laughs> or does it just not date back that far?
2: No, that is correct. I I found that I had things that I wanted to uh, write about and things I wanted to discuss other than just auctions, and that's kind of where Read the Driven came in. I wanted to start a website, and hopefully uh, grow it into something that would be more than just the auction coverage, and the radio show, uh, or the, the podcast that's about to be a terrestrial radio show, that started, my co-host Mark, he and I had a, a mutual friend, and through that mutual friend, we met and started talking and. You know, for good or ill, I can't talk very long without bringing up car stuff. And Mark had had the idea of having a car-based radio show for five years. And the longer we talked, the more, the more it became evident that we should try to do that. And that's why our the, the podcast now is formatted like a radio show, because the end goal was always to get it on the air. And we're about to do that. We're a couple months away. Having a podcast gave us the opportunity to kind of hammer out the details and get the format down for the show and figure out how we were going to do it. Now, I think our podcast sounds a lot better than most, and that's entirely because of Mark. He's been in radio for 30 years. He really knows what he's doing, and he's responsible for our sound. And he's taught me a lot. And In the meantime, I've got six months worth of free education on how to do a radio show. We're about to make that, well, it's not going to be a transition. We're going to continue to be a podcast, but we're also going to have a commercial radio show on in Kansas City. I
0: think I discussed with you and we started chatting, you know, I wanted to do a podcast because I can say what I want, do what I want. And then shortly after we started this, we explored radio. We were approached by a station and I just didn't like some of the limitations it provided. But you went in with that thought process and I really had to ask you if you had a radio show because you guys do it so well the audio's there the edits the 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 way you lay out the show and frankly I I think your show is really good you've gotten some excellent guests over the years or not years, over the uh, year in your second season, you've kind of relaunched with a new name. It used to be Road Muscle Radio, and now it's The Driven. I'll be honest, I think it's a good podcast. It's, you know, one reason we're we're spending an hour with you tonight, and I thank you for letting me spend a half hour with you uh, earlier tonight.
2: I I I was going to come. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say I very much appreciate that. Thank you. And, again, Mark, is the reason the show sounds the way it does. He is the the genius behind all of that. Uh, I'm just the, the car guy on the show. But uh, much like you said about the networking and the, and the collector car community, it's because of being at McPherson and all the people uh, that i met through that, and then uh, really working for Keith at Sports Car Market and American Car Collector that I've gotten to uh, be around all these people and I've gotten to meet all these people. So going back to the the magazine thing, uh, I got to thank Keith and, and everybody at the magazines for making this into a dream job. I would have never met a lot of the people I've gotten to over the last few years if it hadn't been for that. Really, I I got to give it up to the guys at the magazine and the staff and there, and I got to give it up to Mark. I got a lot of people who have made me look awful good and given me a lot of opportunities.
0: Well, that's something I mentioned on your podcast, and we mention quite often on here. It's you know one of the reasons I think we do the podcast is we want to expand the hobby and teach people. But in order to do that, we have to network, and these podcasts. Um, I'm not sure what your listeners and your downloads are, and you know ours are finally getting to be about the goals where I wanted to be. It takes some time, but it allows us this networking. And you know, this year we've had a lot more guests. Now that I've upgraded equipment, and we've got some really exciting guests lined up over the next couple weeks too on this podcast. So I think I think it's a great. You know, networking thing. And if anybody wants to be on your show or wants to be on our show, send me a message. And hey, if you want to be on Brett's, I'll send them your way. It's.
2: Well, I'm I'm easy to track down. I'm Brett at readthedriven.com. But uh, I'm I'm honored that you would have me on. And I thank you for coming on our show as well. Well,
0: I'm going to throw out one last thing and go into the Driven and clicking all the way back to April 16th, 2018. Uh, your first, uh, article or first post on the driven do you remember what that was about
2: I'm wondering if it wasn't uh, the ten days of affordable exotics no
0: nope, this was the uh, it kind of ties into uh, you and Derek and etc the uh, 1959 Corvette and I'll always screw up a Yep, I'll always screw up any coach builders name oh except yeah. Fisher maybe ironically we've I think we touched on your show and we touched a little bit here. When I interned at Barrett Jackson back in 2000, that car, the the red car, I'm not, I know. I think there's what, eight of these. Three. They had a red. Three. Three. A, a, a red one was there. And I, I got to drive that car across
2: the block. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. Well, I'm hugely envious. <laughs> it's
0: one, it's kind of one of those cool things is, You know, back when I did it, nobody wanted to drive their cars across the block. It was the early days of Barrett-Jackson on Speed Vision, and then all of a sudden it seemed to be a big thing, and I'll be honest, I haven't watched Barrett-Jackson on TV the last couple of years. Been very busy in January, and this year, obviously, with Will's car and that, I paid a lot closer attention, and it didn't seem that, you know, that was such a big deal anymore to the owners, as going across the block and being on TV, but... I was just going to say, it's kind of odd to me that this Corvette you have, and Derek's with his, you know, Corvette, and, you know, just one of those, the the small world we all live in. That was an interesting car to drive, and I feel privileged to have gotten the opportunity to drive it all, you know, one mile. I, know.
2: I feel you were privileged to drive it, too.
0: <laughs> there were some other ones. That, there were some others that year that yeah, it kind of makes up for, but...
2: Wow. uh, I understand a gentleman who lives in Arizona owns that red car. I
0: couldn't tell you, but uh, I'll go with what you say.
2: (laughs) But, uh, yeah, that's that's staggering. There's only three of them left. There's only three Mm -hmm. of them, period. They only built three in the first place. Um, And in fact, uh, the article I wrote about that Scaletti when I posted it uh, was kind of a just a, a what if article that was uh carol shelby and a couple other gentlemen approaching gm trying to get uh chevrolet to allow them to build that car before the cobra existed and the what if part of it was what if chevrolet had said yes think of the the unbelievable change to automotive history that would have been there would have been no cobras and as a result, there would have been no Cobra Daytonas, no GT40s, Ford and Ferrari. I don't know if Ford ever would have won a Lamar like they did. Um, and there would have been so many careers that didn't happen because of that. So
0: I always look at the other door. What if it would have? What would have happened in the careers that didn't happen because it didn't happen and things like that? It's it's the what ifs are always fun and that's, you know, that could be a whole episode just to sit around. You know, it's one of those things that you just sit around, have a beer, and you go,
2: "Oh, I, I, I think that, I, I think you probably need a piece of poster board to keep track of all of it by the time you get done."
0: <laughs> Look like one of those math equations that you know physicists come up with trying to flowchart it out in that. But I think with uh, that, you know. Uh, I say, go ahead, check out Brett on the the Driven, read the com. I'm sure your uh, podcast is available on all the podcast catchers, you know, Google Podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts. It, and serves. So, it certainly is. And if you're in the Kansas City area, I think uh, pay attention to your radio dial, and he'll come to you at least once a week. We'll see what that format <laughs> plays out. I'm sure they'll keep us updated. Uh, coming up pretty soon. Well, we thank you for your time, Brett. I know Derek's actually. Say, I say know Derek's actually got to run off and go back to work. He's actually working tonight after the recording too. So,
2: gentlemen, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much, and uh, I'd be happy to talk to you anytime.
1: Yeah, pleasure meeting you, Brett, and I look forward to chatting with you down the road. I'm going to say thank you, and I'm going
0: to get out of here too.
2: I'll give you a holler in May.